0: Welcome to this talk from the Kanando Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Kanando's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canando.org. That's K A N N O N D dot O-R-G. Good
1: evening, everyone. Our sangha consists of many personal relationships, and those relationships are not so familial as I think may exist in a more monastic-type setting, like a, a Zen monastery or a, a place where uh, we spend you know, more hours of the day together. It seems more neighborly to me. It's, it's a Zen, a neighborhood Zen meditation center. And so our relationships can vary quite a bit. I've experienced many ebbs and flows in the past several years with my relationships at Canando. Some take some relationships take years, to forms. And, um, the fact that we, we come together for spiritual practice is, uh, is remarkable um, given where we are and, and and the time that the times that we live in. Um, we sometimes we say Zen is good for nothing, and uh, that we lack something more specific. Uh, I think is um, it's an opportunity. There's a comic from Minnesota named Maria Bamford. And she has this funny bit about being duped into a cup of coffee by a religious organization. So somebody like sneaks up to her and says, yeah, come on down to the rock. And she's like, well, what, what is this place? And she's like, Oh, it's cool. Like neighborhood center. And we, we drink coffee together and talk about real issues. And she's like, "Uh, this sounds like a church. And uh, you know, I laugh about it because our physical address is 1972 Rock Street, and you know, after morning zazen, you know, so many times we've given some version of this, like, "Well, you sat with us. Why not? Why not come over to Starbucks and share a cup of coffee?" And um, in our tradition, like the Zen metaphors are so often fluid but but we've got that I just think it's funny that we have the the rock street address. Well we we lost a part of the sangha last week. Some of you might know that Renee Sterenthal died. I think some I think many of you knew him and will miss him. Renee wasn't uh, he didn't take on um, a position within Doe and um, at the same time he he practiced and he was part of the Sangha and he shared of himself. Uh, to be of no rank is something to hold in high esteem in our tradition. And it's enough. And I was grateful for knowing him in the past several years. Renee would come to Starbucks and he could take over a conversation on occasion, but he was, he always did that with such um, joyful demeanor and uh, a curious spirit. Um, I never had the sense that he wanted to dominate a relationship. Um, so we were able to foster a, a connection over that, that time, over those years. I often feel Capable of really helping. I I feel a need, I feel a yearning to help others, but uh, I doubt I have that much control anymore. But in the least, I can listen to people and to pay attention to their stories. And unless otherwise necessary, believe them. And um, to be curious about. The feelings that accommodate those stories, and listen and to witnesses, uh, most of the time, quite enough. And with Renee, that was very easy to do. Renee came to the Sangha in a period right before a major life event. I've noticed that this happens often. Um, people come right before some news or some life change, um, power of intuition, I guess. For Renee, uh, it was a cancer diagnosis. And so in the face of the, that kind of news, it seems natural that the, um, those questions about what I must know fades and what I should do kind of comes to the forefront. And this was something that Renee shared. It was easy to, easy to see how his life changed. Uh, and he, he, he seemed to study a lot. Nobody uh, at the, nobody down at the rock objected to his absence when he stopped being able to come um, in the morning. And, um, Eventually I ran his, he had a custom sitting bench and I ran it by his house. Rene was a large man and he sat in César with this bench that left plenty of room for his legs. So even in that way, Rene was a technophile. Uh, the Zendo couldn't even completely extinguish that. He, was, he wasn't the first person to offer me sitting advice and he wasn't the only one that said that says i was the way to go and his appreciation of ergonomics uh we had a lot of conversations about bicycles and uh riding a bicycle you know is is a good training for me um the only thing i've ever i ever heard him regret was not having the time to do extended bike touring I, I, I think I understand the impulse to do that, to get out uh, on the road with just you and your bike. Like most of the Silicon Valley, Rene was an immigrant to the U.S. He was originally from Caracas, Venezuela. Um, he was a trained orthodontist. He worked at Align, which is the company that makes the those clear Invisalign braces. Which are 3D printed, uh, you know, um, and he worked almost in, until the end of his life. Um, so I mean, I've been known to question the Silicon Valley and and our and our efforts here and, and what what our uh, what you know how we find balance within. Uh, a community that's, that's so um, driven. But at the same time, now looking at Renee's life, I can't help but see such a great success story. He also um, liked uh, Apple products. We communicated with uh, WhatsApp frequently and he liked photography. He frequently photographed bird life out on the bay and shared those photos on on WhatsApp for us on the Canando group. Throughout his illness, Rene maintained a sense of optimism. He was, I think both ready for a miracle and at the same time accepting of the situation he was in, which is really a model for me uh, about how to manage something, some part of life that's inevitable for all of us. It, not, he never presented it as easy, but he would detail out his therapies and what his intentions were for the outcomes. Um, he, he far outlived the statistics of his diagnosis. So I'm grateful for those years of survival that he had and how he shared them. He was curious and joyful and heroic and um, through it, you know, cultivated this connection that I think is so um, precious as a, as, an organ- as a spiritual organization, as a place where we, we, uh, we can be there for each other. he sent me a quote recently from a Chinese science fiction author he was reading. Uh, I started, I've started the book. Um, haven't finished it yet. And it's a perspective that I might've only gotten through, through literature and, and I may have only been impressed by through this, this conduit of myth, um, which science fiction is, um, Myths can carry precious ideals that that suspend a reality. A reality can easily just destroy an ideal. Um, But here's a note that he forwarded to me from the author that he sent me. There's a strange contradiction revealed by the naivety and kindness demonstrated by humanity when faced with the universe. On earth, humankind can step onto another continent and without a thought, destroy the kindred civilizations found there through warfare and disease. But when they gaze up at the stars, they turn sentimental and believe that if extraterrestrial intelligences exist, they must be civilizations bound by universal, noble moral constraints as if cherishing and loving different forms of life are parts of a self-evident universal code of conduct. I think it should be precisely the opposite. Let's turn the kindness we show toward the stars to members of the human race on earth and build up the trust and understanding between different peoples and civilizations that make up humanity. I think what the author may be saying is that dehumanization is a process and it takes groups of people a lot of work but it's at, at its foundation some at its foundation it's some persistent idea that appears as something like a noble constraint or a universal code and it's not the idea that's the issue the the ideas are fine. Let's hear about your values, you know. Um, we have time for that. Um, but I think what the author is touching on is the way or the pervasiveness with which we can see other people across an idea that we value. As though some somehow others don't believe in something as universal as even the need for human belonging. And so that's why I feel it's important that we listen to stories and we remember the people that touch us. To listen completely to someone's experience is to practice including them in our world. And this is much more than the language we use or the ideas that we hold we form presence in 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 Sangha. And And then the author goes on to say, and this is his personal notes, this is not part of his fiction writing. But for the universe outside the solar system, we should be ever vigilant and be ready to attribute the worst of intentions to any others that might exist in space. For a fragile civilization like ours, This is without a doubt, the most responsible path. So don't you come on down to the rock. (laughs) I'll shoot first and ask questions later. It's amazing to me that someone has such a sober, sober resolve to protect humanity from galactic invaders. And we should take some care of how to respond to that, especially someone from a different culture, from a completely different perspective. And it's such a sentiment, I mean, I, I think he's sincere. It comes from a deep human need. And like I said, when people tell their stories, unless it's other otherwise necess- necessary, and sometimes it is, but if it's not. If it's, unless it's absolutely necessary to object, I think we should believe we believe them, believe their stories and their experience. It's not actually necessary to compare my reality. And I, I have his book to finish still. So in any ending or phase shift in life, it seems like we have this opportunity for connecting. For a rehumanization, and and in that time, I think it's possible for some of life's struggles or concerns to ease. I've been giving up certain ideas of helping to some larger cause. That my help is is destined to some to something my mind creates out there. Zen is always right here. So when we explain too much about practice, like I did earlier, it can feel degraded a bit. The language, our language creates a, eventually creates a dead end and we get wrapped up in ideas or metaphors. In the jewel mirror, there's this, Line that you might know. When about to fulfill the way of Buddhahood, one gazed at a tree for 10 eons. That's a long time. I don't know how long that is, but that's a long time. And so when we sit, um, one hand is supporting one, the other, and they meet together. So it's like this, like that. But, the, but the hand is supporting the, the other and they meet together. And I think this, this means something. And these other concerns may not be so urgent if we practice that way. One hand supporting another. No, not. It's not necessary to to consider a civilization bound by some universal constraint. Um, It's not necessary to to even have ideas of reality or to forget I forget those ideas as we sit with ourselves and each other. Just to trust that we are human whether we think about it or not. And like Renee, that will remain remain spirited regardless of any difficulties that arise in our lives. Thank you.
2: Now's the time for um, any questions or uh, discussion points you'd like to bring up with Travis. Um, if you want to talk or uh, discuss some, um, raise your hand, or just uh, just nod.
1: Candy, you have your hand yes.
3: raised. Yeah. I wanted to ask, um, just out of curiosity,
2: who the uh, author was, the science fiction author was.
1: Yes, uh, Sixian Liu, and the book is the the th- the three. This uh the three phase problem. Oh that okay. one, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you.
2: You bet. Uh thank you, Travis, for that nice talk. I'm sorry I never got to know Renee. I'm glad you did and um sorry you lost your friend. I wanted to um show people. You know that the bookmark that we got in the mail for the annual drive. This was a a photo that Renee took. Oh. uh, The uh, some sort of swan or something on there. Anyway, Diane wanted to use one of his photos to honor him, and I think he got to see this before he died. So that was nice.
3: But thank you, Travis. It's great to see you.
1: Thank you, Janet.
2: Dan? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, what you said about Renee, um, And it struck me when you said he was ready for a miracle, but he, he was accepting a situation as well. And um, sometime back in October, November, he, he had kind of an epiphany and a, was very hopeful that he could, he gave up um, treatments that weren't working and were um, difficult for him and was very hopeful that he could find a way to do it through natural means. And that lasted for about a month, I think, maybe 45 days or so. And then he sort of said, well, I mean, I think that he had, um, the cancer was progressing and he realized that he couldn't will it away. And um, yeah, but he was really upbeat and um, at at one time, and I'm sure there were tough times, but he was also really, uns- he wasn't sentimental about it. You know, he, um, I don't know if you found this, Travis, but he was, I asked him, I mean, I i, sat, I saw him a couple of times um, towards the end and, and um, you know, I asked him if he was ready. And he said, he said, um, he said, yeah, like without, without sentimentality, he said, I just don't want any pain, but I'm, I'm ready, yeah it was uh, and he has a lovely family and um it was just you know i I, i'm moved by that i'm i i fall like a baby myself but i I would think but i don't know i haven't been there and um another thing i just want to say that you know what you're saying um you know our practice is so much about silence but you know it the more that i do this the more that I'm taking it's about relationships yeah. more and more more and more
1: yeah yeah I think that's true you know it's like maybe we're known as like thinking about enlightenment and that that being like a inner, inner work but I I don't think we should talk so much about that it's <laughs> like um, how are we with each other and you know, can we be present and, and do the appropriate thing in the situations we're in together. And, and he was, you know, he, he was uh, real, really solid, mm-hmm. you know, he, he would say, you know, Oh, it's much better now that I have the palliative pain management, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, he had his eyes open and he gave me a lot of confidence that I could do that too. And, uh, that's, you know, we're, we're enriched by that. We don't have to do anything superhuman.
0: Um, yeah.
1: You know, I'm, I'm more and more skeptical of ideas that we have to be more, something more, than what we are, just to continue to refine and practice what we already have you know, is it's, it's, it's right here. And when we show up for each other, and you know, we get to know each other, um, cultivate this connection, you know, and you know, we you have it, you know, you know. Um, when you came back from. You're intensive. I remember you said that, uh, Oh, you know, they treat it like a religion. You just, <laughs> you just said it, you know, just with, with com- completely, I, you know, I, that openness of, it's really like a religion, you know, and, you know, I think we learn how to, to open up in that way. And there's less and less that we have to be concerned with mm-hmm. when, um, when we have a real sangha. Then we have people that are um, going through difficulty with health, but at the same time, there are people expecting children, people that just got married. And so it's, it'll continue on, you know? Um, But, um, you know, when I first came to the Sangha, uh, you know, I would hear from longtime members, oh, you know, so and so, you know, and and I wouldn't really know this person. Um, but Renee, you know, I remember when Renee came, and I can remember um, you know, those years that we had together, and I'm really thankful for for all the Sangha, but uh thinking about Renee and um and how, uh, yeah, he, he was just, he was honest and, uh, warm, warm hearted and, um, and shared, shared, he never betrayed himself. You know, he never, he was always, um, okay in his skin, you know? And he gave gave I think he gave me the sense that I could be that way too, you know. Thank
2: you. Looks like um Debbie has his hand up.
4: Hi Debbie. Hi. Um, I'm really sorry for your loss and for everyone's loss, you know, in the community itself um just wanted to ask you since this is the topic um in rena's case like he he sort of received a gift in terms of knowing when and approximately when this would happen right and in our case many people they just hoping for tomorrow but it's so uncertain at the time um when the time for us will come and for some it will come very young and for some will come at the age and for me, for example, I recently had a car accident um, right day after Christmas and it was it was a serious mm-hmm. one. So like that day, I asked my, myself, this could have been the day that I could have not walked out from the car, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do you see it? Like, how do you <clears throat> how do you address that uncertainty? And what have you learned during Zen, for example, what have you learned um, to cope with it, because at the end of the day, some people have a gift of knowing, and then there's us who have no gift of not knowing, and we all assume tomorrow is guaranteed, but um, it is not.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, uh, Renee, like outlived his, his diagnosis. Um, it was a form of lung cancer, but he had some, um, some promising treatments, especially early on. Um, so what became, you know, maybe a year or two became four years. Um, but you know, that's a, it's a relatively like long period of time. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it's hard to like, forget that there was one time where I was complaining about something with him and, and this was just like last year and, and he said, he said, be happy. You should be happy. And, uh, you know, if somebody wasn't in that situation, I I don't think it would have, uh, it would have really uh, impressed me so much or made such a impact on me, you know, um, because I don't know, you know, because I'm always, uh, uh, thinking, Oh, well, this could be so much better if only this, you know, those if only kinds of sentiments. So I think um, practicing with with uh, a awareness of our finiteness, of our like that that is that nothing is guaranteed, is that's an ongoing process. Um, and you're right, an accident could happen like the one you experienced over the holidays that that could take it all away. Um, so those can be, we can come out of events like that with a, with a increased kind of clarity about what's important. Thank you. That That answer your question, Debbie?
4: Absolutely yes. Thank you.
1: Yeah, he did have a lovely family and, and uh, it, it made me think about, you know, I have such limited time, you know, with my, with my family and my kids while they're still in the house and, um, you know, wanting to make sure I don't miss out on opportunities. So, yeah, I'm rethinking, you know, my work situation and, and um, my priorities at, because you know, you can't you can't save it all up for some time in the future. It's uh, it's now.
4: I think that that was an excellent words what he said. Be happy. That means a lot. Also, meaning that do what you feel like a priority and do what makes you happy
1: and Mm -hmm. yeah. Cause we have some control over that, this, those circumstances. Um, and he, he had his hobbies and he had a life that he put together that was, uh, he was clearly a happy person, warm, but he was also joyful and joyfulness is more, there's an inner warmth, you know, and he had that too. And, uh, and, and I think, I think we all have that and um, they, they, they're not quite the same, but they're interrelated, you know. Thank you again. Thanks for your question. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well.
3: Hi, Teresa. Hi, Travis. Thank you for sharing Ernest's story uh, today. Sometimes it's difficult for me to w- wake up so early, it's four fifteen in Spain, 4.50 a.m., but I'm so happy I woke up today to listen to your talk. It was such a beautiful talk. I remember him in the same terms that you do. So optimistic. Yes. Yes. So optimistic, and most of the time um, he he liked to call me or be in touch when he had good news to share. Yeah. When some treatment was working, you know, he he will stay in touch. I was talking to his wife uh, Sunday, and uh, and she told me well they were together since they were since they were twenty. They met at the um, at the university. And she said that Renee uh, saw, her, saw her first. And uh, so she, she was telling me how amazing um, he was and how much she loved him and you know, what a wonderful life they had together. And how much she admired him for the way he, you know, he handled his disease. So he's buried near a tree. I found that very, very beautiful. So maybe one day we can go visit him.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful.
3: Uh, and he really loved you, Travis. Uh, I hope you know that.
1: Thanks for saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Renee. I'll miss his voice. You know, <laughs> he had a big voice that was uh, uh, kind of buzzed, but it was it was big. His he had a big frame, and it, uh, his voice resonated, but it was steady too. Yeah. I shared with him, you know, at the end of the year uh, in December, there was a big announcement about a nuclear fusion experiment that um, was kind of a landmark thing. And he was thinking about what I would call like the long future that most most people aren't concerned with, like something that could happen in thirty years or fifty years. And he said, Oh yeah, that'll really help. You know? Uh, so I think it made me think about, you know, at the end of life, there's a, there's some blessing that comes where you get to consider, uh, there's this ease of like not having to worry about the day to day so much and to consider, um, and to, especially if you live optimistically uh, and hopefully as he, as he did, um, that things will open up for you and, yeah, I I was happy I shared that with him because as I as I said earlier, he's a, he was a technophile and he he was in the right place, you know, to be that. Hi, Philip.
0: Hi, Travis. Thank you for your talk and uh, remembering Renee. I, I didn't know him, but I had heard of him? Uh, I would hear of him occasionally when I visited the Zendo, um, and uh, about his photography. And so well, it's beautiful to have him brought to life. I was thinking um, of the the warmth that I hear from from you and other people talking about him, and especially uh, Teresa's last uh, comment about about the hug and uh, and you're mentioning the mudra
2: hmm.
0: uh about uh, it was a it was a wonderful way of um expressing uh how how uh we can even give ourselves warmth in that sense of of the two hands coming together and feel that 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 warmth in, in all of us and and what we uh what we receive from one another and and give to one another. So I just I just wanted to say that I, I really appreciated that uh, bringing that all kind of home to to a mudra to, and and uh, that part of, of, of zazen that's that's not a um, a project or or, uh, or in service to any idea, but is right right there as you said and right there for us and helping us be right, right here for each other, thank you.
1: Thank you, I think that's really well said. Yeah, around the end of life, that there, there's uh, becomes clear that there's no problem to solve. That that uh, just to just to experience it and and to be present with it and to witness it.
0: This talk was brought to you by the Kanando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to Canando.org. That's
1: K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot